one of my uh, favorite sets of movies, or you can say trilogies of movies of all time, I think it's one of the greatest, but that's my opinion, is the uh, Dark Knight trilogy. I think it's one of the greatest series of movies ever, but we'll wait and see what comes out later. Marvel's definitely not better than the Dark Knight, but don't tell my son that. He'll probably get angry. But if you remember anything about the Dark Knight, if you don't, I'll briefly tell you the story about the Dark Knight. Essentially, the, the premise of it is that uh, Mr. Bruce Wayne, who has you know, left the city of Gotham, he's gone, and now he has returned. And he's returning to the city of Gotham, and generally he has one idea that he wants to get across, or one thing he wants to do. He wants to, shall we say, save and preserve the city of Gotham. Now, he uses two means to preserve and save his people. On one hand, he uses his fighting skills, as he's learned as a member of the League of Shadows. He uses his fighting skills and he uses his great wealth to buy all these gadgets and other military gadgets. And he uses all these skills and all these gadgets to essentially become a night vigilante. And he's essentially trying to take care and save the city all by himself. He'll do it at night. He'll work during the day, but at night he's going to save the city, taking care of crime. So one hand, he works on his own. But then there is a part in which he's actually trying to, shall we say, use the people of Gotham to preserve themselves. And so he's he's trying to make a, a better police force. So he wants a guy named Jim Gordon to run the police Because he's a better police chief. The police chief they had was corrupt. And if you have a corrupt police chief, everything in the city goes really bad. He also wants Harvey Dent to run uh, for government so that they have better mayor and better government, better district attorney. He's trying to use the people in the city of Gotham to preserve themselves. Now, hopefully this is not a spoiler alert, but these movies have been out for a long time. Harvey Dent winds up not doing so well because he he becomes two-faced. But he's trying to use the people of Gotham to help preserve themselves. In many ways, you can say that Bruce Wayne or Batman is using both extraordinary means and ordinary means to preserve the city of Gotham. In our New Testament text, Acts chapter 5, in many ways we can say that God uses both extraordinary means and ordinary means to preserve both his word and his church. Now, to be clear, what we mean by extraordinary and ordinary is not exciting and boring. You say that God is preserving his word and church extraordinarily. We don't mean that it's the exciting things. It means It's the ways in which God preserves his word and church apart from us. What he does on his own, not looking for our help. But also that God uses ordinary means, not that they're boring, but God preserves his word and church through us, his people. Acts chapter five, we see both at play. First, we'll look at the extraordinary ways in which God preserves his word and church. And obviously, The most glaring one that pops out is this unexplainable rescue from prison. The apostles, they have been preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you read the book of Acts, you know they come up against trials and they come up against roadblocks. 
And here they come up against the roadblocks, against the high priests and the Sadducees, the religious, the Jewish religious leaders who do not want to hear them preaching the gospel. And so these religious leaders, they, first of all, because of their jealousy, their jealousy seeing that this gospel is spreading, that they do not want to spread, they put the apostles in a public prison. Now, when we think of public prison, we think of prisons that are ran by our money, our tax dollars, which is true for us as Americans. But in the book of Acts, when it says a public prison, it wasn't necessarily because it was tax funded, though I'm sure they used the people's money. But the point of it was that they were trying to imprison the apostles in a public manner. They wanted to expose and embarrass the apostles to try to tamper down the preaching of the gospel. And they throw the the apostles in prison and God sends angels to open up the prisons and allow the apostles go go free in a very unexplainable manner. The apostles can't explain it. The religious leaders can't explain it. The jailers and, and the guards, they can't explain exactly what happened. But God, through extraordinary means in a miraculous way, opens up the doors and provides an escape for his apostles. We can say that what God is proclaiming through this unexplainable rescue to both the religious leaders and those who are watching, just as much as you cannot keep my apostles bound, you cannot keep my word bound. God, in an extraordinary way, preserves his word and his church all on his own. Many times we assume and think that these miraculous feats are only for Scripture. They still happen today. I remember being in college. Now, if you went to a small Christian college like I did, you probably heard a lot of stories by missionaries. They always have the missionaries, especially alumni missionaries, come back and tell us great stories of them proclaiming the gospel and people being saved and baptized. And so we would hear these stories. Now, to be honest, I, I forgot almost all the stories. Because there's so many of them, you can't keep them all contained in your brain. But there's one story I always remembered. It always stuck in my mind. And to me, it is a miraculous account of how God, in an extraordinary way, is still preserving his word and his church in ways that cannot be explained. Over in, I'll just say, a country in Asia, a group of missionaries had gone over and they were proclaiming the gospel. And one of the things they had, they had the translation of scripture in the language of the people they were going to be going to. And they riding around in a van, they were getting to the village they were going to, and they were pulled over by authorities. Now, they knew, first of all, they didn't look like they belonged. So they knew they had the chance that they would get pulled over. And obviously they were fearful because they had this box of... Uh, translation of scripture in the back of their van. They get pulled over by the authorities. They weren't sure what's going to happen, but they knew for for the most part, they're going to take our Bibles. We're going to go to this village empty handed with nothing for these people we've been trying to help and, and proclaim the gospel to. The authorities pull them over. They search the people. They search the van. And they tell the story. They said, well, for some strange reason, they never opened up the box. We didn't try to hide it. They were just right there. He just never opened up the box. They searched us, spoke to us harshly, and let us go on our way. Now, it doesn't doesn't sound very miraculous. It just sounds like they they just missed the box. 
But when I hear that story, it sounds like something unexplainable, some, something miraculous, where at least at this point, God wanted his scripture to get to these group of people. And God, in an unexplainable way, had these Bibles passed through and passed by the eyes of these authorities. Might not sound as miraculous, but God, in unexplainable ways, is still preserving his word and his church. God preserves us as his people as well. Reality is, we are not supposed to have faith just hoping that one day God would provide the miraculous. We are continuing to have faith no matter what happens, whether he provides the miraculous or not. I thought about this rescue by the prisoner from from prison. I thought about the the rescue of those who had the Bibles in boxes. The fact that God may in some way provide unexplainable ways for us to be preserved. Yet we're still not called to just trust in what happens miraculously. We're supposed to trust in him alone. I thought about one story, which we all know in Daniel chapter three. Three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are thrown in a fiery furnace for going against the word of the king. But it's something that they say that I think is a help to us. As they're speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, they say, Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, the same way the missionaries, they knew they might take our Bibles, but we're still going. Things may happen in our life and in our church. But we won't bow the knee. We'll still serve our God, even if he doesn't rescue us the way it would be nice for him to do and make it easy on us. God preserves his people extraordinarily through the miraculous, and he still does. And yet we're still to trust in God, whether he does or not. We see God's extraordinary work through the unexplainable rescue, but we also see God's extraordinary work working on his own through his providence. We know that God's providence is his working of all events and human actions for his own purpose and glory. In other words, we can say the times we go, man, that's interesting. What great timing. It's not a happenstance. It's God's providence at work for his people. In Acts chapter 5, the verses we read before the New Testament reading, around verse 26, it says that while they are going against the apostles, there's a crowd around, and God uses the crowd to preserve his apostles. The council who wanted to stone and kill them, it says they're reluctant because the crowd liked to hear the apostles preach. God's providence, or in our vernacular, you say, it, it just so happened that the crowd was there. It didn't just so happen that the crowd was there by God's providence. God provided the crowd to protect the apostles. See God's providence in the crowd, but we also see God's providence in one religious leader stepping up, Gamaliel. Now, 
We'll hear of Gamaliel later. If you continue to read through the book of Acts, you would, you would hear of him later because he is the teacher to the Apostle Paul. Gamaliel is there in this council of religious leaders, and he stands up and he says, listen, let's have, uh, now if you're part of the session, let's have an executive session here. Let's, let's kick everybody out. Let's just talk amongst ourselves. And he says, listen, before we, we act too quickly with these apostles, let's think about this for a moment. Here we have a group of men proclaiming some strange gospel, as they call it. But we've had other rebels before, so let's not lose our heads. So first of all, there was Theodos. So remember, we had Theodos rise up, and he had men with him. But remember, once Theodos died, his rebellion died out too. Then there was Judas the Galilean. He rose up. He was rebellious. He rebelled against us. Now, to be fair, I, I like Judas. The reason I like Judas is because his rebellion was against taxes. And I don't know anybody who likes paying taxes. Sometimes I wish maybe we rise up. In. No. Judas rose up and he says, remember, Judas, the Galilean, he rose up. He was trying to fight against paying taxes to pagans. He rose up. But, you know, once he died. His movement died out, too. So just let them go free. To a certain degree, Gamaliel is right. Whenever the leader of a rebellion dies, the movement eventually dies down, too. But here's where Gamaliel was wrong. Gamaliel had the wrong people in charge of this rebellious movement. Gamaliel assumed that once the apostles die, this rebellion will die out too. But unfortunately, the real leader of this movement did die, but he rose again. The leader of this rebellion, the leader of this movement of the way, he's not dead. He lives forevermore, and that's why his movement not only didn't die, has not died yet. Reality is all of us here this morning and all of God's people who are worshiping wherever they are this morning are a testament. That our rebellious leader ain't dead. He lives forevermore and his people are still here. God preserved his people through the mistaken words of Gamaliel. Once again, we can say, oh, it just so happened that Gamaliel was there that day during the religious council. But no, it was God's providence. That an unbeliever actually spoke up. For the people to preserve the apostles. Once again, God preserves his word and his church through extraordinary ways. Through the unexplainable rescue and through his own providence. But then in Acts 5, we also see how God preserves his word in church in ordinary ways. He preserves his word in church through us, his church. He preserves his word in his church through our faithful obedience, 
through our joyful perseverance, and lastly, our bold witness. Our faithful obedience, our joyful perseverance, and our bold witness. First of all, God preserves his word in church as we faithfully obey what he has commanded us. We learn that faithful obedience will mean disobedience to alternative commands. Remember that twice the religious council had told the apostles, stop preaching. There was an alternative command in front of them. And so their choices are we either stop preaching and listen to the religious council or we keep preaching and listen to the word of the Lord. Faithful obedience is always disobedience to an alternative command. We can think all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve were either going to listen to the word of God that he had given to them or the word of the serpent. In our lives, every day, every decision that we make, it's always obedience to somebody. We're always obeying somebody. We can either obey God and his word. We can obey our own inclinations of what we think is right. We can obey someone else's word because they think they are right. But we are always going to be obeying somebody. God preserves his people through faithful obedience, which means we're going to have to disobey Somebody. The apostles chose right and continued to proclaim the gospel no matter what the outcome would be. Not only does God preserve us through our faithful obedience, but also through joyful perseverance. In the face of increasing oppositions, the apostles and the church continue to proclaim the gospel. One commentator says, he says, you know, Luke begins in the gospel of Luke with the opposition mainly towards Jesus. Then the opposition is towards the apostles only, with only Peter and John being charged in the previous trial. Later, the opposition will spread to the rest of the church, including the death of Stephen, who wasn't even an apostle. There is increasing opposition as we go from the book of Luke to the book of Acts. And in the face of increasing opposition... God's people joyfully persevere. Chapter 5, verse 41, it says they left rejoicing after they were beaten. The apostles left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, when you preach, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a little backstory here. When you preach, you feel like you have to have all the answers. Like you have to have an explanation and a reason why these things in Scripture are are happening. I have no answer for this. Outside of the work of the spirit of God in a group of people. Being physically harmed. For the sake of the gospel and leaving joyfully praising God through song I have no explanation outside of the spirit had to be working in these group of people. 
only the work of God's Spirit could have someone rejoice when you've been mocked and beaten for the sake of the gospel. I have a few examples of other people who did the same, but I still have no real explanation. The two examples I can think of, one, I can think of those who worked in the civil rights movement. In prison for doing what was right, and yet they were in prison doing what? Singing. Singing in the midst of being imprisoned. And we know what they were singing because whether people want to tell you the truth of history or not, the majority of the civil rights movement leaders were Christians. Gospel preachers. They were singing hymns imprisoned. Always joke with my grandfather as I hear his stories of growing up in Georgia facing more than I can handle. I always tell him, Pop, I'd have been dead already. I couldn't have did what you did. To be mocked like that and not say nothing back, they would have killed me. It's the work of the spirit, how someone can sing in the midst of difficulty. But you also think of the martyrs. If you ever read books such as like the Fox's Book of Martyrs, you hear people being imprisoned, burned at the stake and before their death, praising God, offering prayers, even forgiving the people who were about to kill them. It's only the work of the spirit. One thing I'll add is that it says they left together singing. Not only is the work of the spirit, but I think there's something about when the Christians are together, it lightens the load of being mocked. If you know, if you're the only Christian on your job or one of the very few, if you're the only Christian at your school, you may have been mocked. It's, it's hard to be mocked by yourself. It's hard to be made fun of in slick ways about your faith when you're all alone. And unfortunately, if you're like me, the spirit's not always working and you make smart comments back, which winds up not being the greatest example of what it means to be a Christian. But it, it's hard to suffer for the gospel all by yourself. It's another important reason for us to be here on Sunday, to gather with the saints, to be strengthened by the gospel, because the reality is some of us will go to a place on Monday that does not respect what we believe. It will be hard. But you're strengthened because you're together. The church, the apostles, God used their joyful perseverance, empowering them by his spirit to preserve his word and his church. Faithful obedience, joyful perseverance, and lastly, we see the apostles' bold witness. Earlier in chapter 4, this is before what we read the apostles had actually prayed to God, give us boldness in our preaching. And we see their boldness in what I see as a comical court case. Now, I almost see comedy in probably way too many parts of Scripture, but it helps me understand Scripture better if I read it the way I see it in my mind. So I see this court scene as comical. Remember, the apostles are brought in. It's a real court. They're brought into court. 
And the religious leaders begin to throw accusations toward him. And they say, listen, we had told you before to stop preaching about this man. And outside of that, you keep telling everybody that we killed him. The apostles respond by doing what? They say, well, first of all, we don't listen to you. We listen to God. And second of all, you did kill him. Now, I see that as comical because what kind of strength do you have to have to tell a group of people you did kill the man we're talking about? That's a bold witness that in the face of opposition, you tell it like it is. You speak the truth. Even if it goes against everything they've just said. Now, the reality is various parts of Scripture, there are prescriptive parts of Scripture and descriptive parts of Scripture. Prescriptive means it's those things that we're called to do and follow the example to a T. Descriptive are descriptive of what actually took place. Now, prescriptively, we're called to be bold witnesses for the sake of the gospel Descriptively, we're not necessarily called to fling accusations right back and say, well, you did kill him, by the way. But we all call to be bold witnesses. But the thing is, we don't, we don't need to act more bold than what we are. The reality is, sometimes you'll see a Christian who will proclaim the gospel with boldness and they'll beat their chest and tell you, I'm the boldest Christian out here, I proclaim the gospel and Sometimes, even as a Christian, I go, you kind of just sound like a jerk. We are called to be bold in our witness, but we don't need to be jerks about it. The reality is because the message we proclaim is already hard enough for people to hear. We don't have to walk around acting more bold because the message we proclaim is bold enough. The simple proclamation of the gospel already puts you on a ledge. That's comfort as well for some people. Because many of us are timid to proclaim the gospel. And I would say, know that that's okay when you feel uncertain. It's okay to feel unsure because you don't stand on your own. You are standing on the word you proclaim It's bold enough. It's okay. Just say what God has already said. I've preached various times and still in the small conversations at work, I still get tingling on the back of my neck when I'm proclaiming to someone who I know don't really want to hear what I have to say. It can get awkward. feel timid. But if I stand on the word itself, it is bold enough. Here, as I close, hear this bold message that the apostles proclaimed, the church has proclaimed down the centuries, and that we are called to proclaim ourselves today. The bold message we stand on that you don't need to beat your chest because it is already bold enough. The message is simply this. This Jesus, 
who was hung on a tree, seen as cursed by the Jewish people and leaders, God the Father exalted him, both by his resurrection from the grave and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father as both leader and savior. Through him, the enemies of God, Jew and Gentile alike, are offered offered the gift of repentance. Through him and him only is the forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit is a witness to this, attesting to the truthfulness of this gospel. He, the Holy Spirit, is both the gift and guarantee of this good news concerning Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That is a bold proclamation to make. But it's the one we stand upon. It's the message by which we are saved. Message by which those who hear and receive it are saved as well. 